This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. The legends are true! But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor and chief film critic, Chris Evangelista. Hello. Uh, Chris, I want to start out with a listener email. William from Green Bay, Wisconsin writes in to us, do you and your team do the Oscars death race challenge in which you watch every Oscar nominated movie prior to the evening? I'm currently left with 11 movies and two shorts. I'm actually going to pause his email right there and just like, let, let's uh, answer that question. What do you do? How do you handle um, the, the Oscar viewing, Chris? Do you know anything about what this Oscars death race challenge is? No, I have never heard of this before, and it sounds exhausting. I don't know. I don't know if I would do this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had never heard of it before either, actually. And uh, I, I looked it up right before we started recording, and evidently this has been going on since like 2010 or so. And uh, somebody just started a website called author, OscarsDeathRace.com where you can track um, watching every single movie that's nominated in every category uh, across the entire um, the, the whole thing there. So uh, I definitely do not do that as part of my you know personal viewing habits. I try to just see as many things as I can within reason without like completely, um, you know, breaking my own soul by like <laughs> watching every single uh, depressing, you know, uh, short documentary or whatever the, the documentary shorts, I feel like especially are like notorious for being um, super depressing in terms of the subject matter. So Oftentimes I'll steer clear of that category entirely because I'm I'm just like personally okay with, you know, just letting those go and not really, uh, you know, feeling like a completist there. But um, do you have like an approach, Chris, to, to how you handle this? No, I want, you know, I watch the movies as they come out. Uh, I, you know, I, I usually catch up on as much as I can at the end of the year uh, for I'm in a critic society. So I, I catch up on that stuff to watch it, to, to vote. But um, the idea of like watching every single Oscar nominated movie just I, it doesn't appeal to me, honestly. I mean, maybe the, it's not that I'm like against it. Like, ha, what a stupid thing to do. I just it's just not something I would be interested in doing. Like, I've seen all the best picture nominees. So I feel like that's 
that's where I draw the line. Usually I try to see all the best picture nominees, but that's about it. Yeah. Um, okay. So back to the rest of William's email here. He says, uh, on a similar note, any idea as to when the boy and the heron will be coming to VOD? I'm a big dummy and didn't go to the theater when I had the chance. Um, so he's probably asking that because that's one of the uh, uh, best animated feature nominees this year. Um, I don't really know the answer to this. Chris, have you heard anything? Just like I'm No, as far as I know, on. there hasn't been any update yet about that. I'm, I, I usually get emails about this, and I haven't gotten an email that says, like, it's coming to VOD anytime soon. So Yeah, I've seen some speculation that, like, maybe it could happen as soon as this month in order to sort of, like, time things and give people a little bit of a chance to catch up with it before the Oscar ceremony. But um, don't put much credence into that because that's just, like, internet rumor stuff. So nothing... Uh, nothing serious there. So, um, okay, let's get into the water cooler. Um, Chris, have you been like reading anything recently? I, I, I'm in the middle of reading something. I'm, I guess I'm just going to wait until I finish the book to talk about it here. But uh, I know you're a, a reader here and there. So uh, have you read anything recently? You know, I actually did just read a book um, and I forget the title of it because I'm poorly prepared. I'm going to look up. Uh, <laughs> it was called, I got an advanced reader's copy of this book by Stephen Hyden called There Is Nothing You Could Do. Bruce Springsteen, Born in the USA, and The End of the Heartland. And it's all about the making of the album Born in the USA and its cultural significance. And uh, it's like a, it's a, it's a book that's like a, it's like art, it's like a music criticism book. And it's just about about the the album and its impact and the impact it had on the author. And uh, it was really good. I finished it in a few days. Um, I I love Bruce Springsteen. You know, I like Born in the USA. So it was interesting to read about the book in, you know, in context of when it was released and Bruce Springsteen's career and, and all this stuff. So that comes out in, um, I think it comes out in May. I want to say it comes out May 28th. So I recommend that. Check that out. Do you often read books about music? That That's like a fascinating thing. No, this is me. actually like the, I, I, I read a lot of books about movies, but this is like the first like music criticism book I've like ever read. And it's made me like, realize like I should start reading more about music because it's just fascinating to read about it like this. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't, I never really got into, um, you know, like pitch, uh, pitchfork RIP and then like some of those, uh, like famous movie, I'm um, sorry, music review sites. Um, but it, you know, from the outside looking in, it just strikes me as like a very difficult art form to write about. Like movies, I feel like might be a little easier than music because, You've got not only sound, but visuals to focus on too. And right. music just feels so much more uh, intangible. It just feels like so much more, um, I don't know, I guess like personal or emotional or something to write about. So it's interesting to um, to think about like the differences, I guess, between writing about those two art forms. But did you find anything, uh, I guess, surprising to you in terms of like how this particular book tackled that idea at all? It's just, I wouldn't say surprising. It was just insightful into like the process of the album and how it, uh, you know, how it was just so huge and how it pretty much turned Bruce Springsteen into this. Like, I mean, he was already popular, but it made him this sort of like juggernaut. And, and the book sort of argues that like something like this could not exist anymore. Like it's an album that appealed to pretty much everyone. Like, you know, people on the left, people on the right, old, young, and like, stuff like that really does not exist anymore, like in, in our, our current landscape. And I just found that kind of fascinating about how, like you don't really make art that appeals to everyone these days. Like it's just, uh, yeah. it's like a, it's like a, 
thing that's just gone, gone. It's just about, I mean, look at just the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is like the most, like this Super Bowl in particular has become ultra political, just like the way our, our society is right now. It's just like, I'm rooting for this team because of Taylor Swift and, and, and uh, you know, and Taylor Swift is going to endorse Joe Biden, like, which did not happen. And it's just like, we, you know, we, everyone's just lost their minds basically. And like, <laughs> you can't, and like, things are so much different in, in the eighties. Not that, you know, there wasn't a political divide. Obviously there was a political divide and, you know, the eighties were the era of, you know, the, the horrible person that was Ronald Reagan. So it's not like <laughs> it didn't exist. It's just like, a different way of, of art being released and art being consumed by, by people. It's just yeah. like a very different way. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay. So let's get into, I guess what we've been watching. Um, I have a few things that I want to talk about. I watched a movie called zero focus from 1961. Have you ever heard of this, Chris? Absolutely not. No. Okay. So uh, Yoshitaro Numura is the director and this movie is about a woman named uh, Tiko whose husband goes on a business trip one week after their wedding day and he has this promising career in advertising, and he's supposed to return from this trip a few days later, but he never comes back. So Tico is calling around, trying to figure out where he is, and everybody's like, oh, I'm sure he'll be fine. You know, he doesn't like gambling. He's not a big drinker. Everything will be fine. And she realizes pretty quickly that she doesn't really know very much about her own husband. And kind of like armed with these two mysterious photographs that she's discovered among his personal possessions, she ends up going on this quest to track him down. And it basically becomes like a detective story, even though she isn't a, uh, a detective by trade. She's like interviewing her husband's boss and taking cross-country trains to follow leads and all of that. Uh, I really dug this movie. There's very little wasted time here. I felt like it really got down to business in, a, in a, an efficient way. And it never feels like it drags at all, which is kind of rare. Um, it's a it's a small scale human mystery, but I thought it was very compelling and ultimately pretty satisfying. So uh, it's called Zero Focus. It's on the Criterion channel. If you want to check that out, I'd recommend it. Uh, I've also watched After the Thin Man for the first time. Have you ever seen any of the Thin Man films, Chris? No, I know of them, but I have never seen them. They're like a blind spot. My wife bought me all of them on Blu-ray for Christmas this year. Uh, and she and I had watched... The Thin Man, the original movie, um, a couple times, and but I'd never seen any of the sequels. And I want to say there are like seven movies in this franchise or something. They really just like kept going back to the well. And I had heard that the first one is great, and then all the other ones it was kind of like diminishing returns or like uh, you know it kind of drops off a cliff quality wise. But I I found the second one to be pretty enjoyable. This is the the second on screen adventure of Nick and Nora Charles, who uh, the, these characters are a married couple who are deeply in love with each other and always seem to find themselves caught up in a mystery. Uh, the Nick character is played by William Powell and Nora is played by Marina Loy. And the two of them are great together as usual. And they, the two actors co-starred in 13 movies of the, over the years, which um, I feel like doesn't really happen that often these days anymore. I would love to see more of that. I feel like we, we talked about that with like um, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. Like I just wish that they, could work together more uh, and, and sort of really develop that um, that on-screen partnership and, and pairing. Um, W.S. Van Dyke, who directed the first movie in this franchise, also came back for this one. And I just learned that he was known in Hollywood. I figured you would appreciate this, Chris. He was known as One Take Woody because he was so efficient and getting what he needed on, on film sets. So <laughs> Hell yeah. <it's laughs> 
quite the uh, the nickname there. Uh, the plot of this movie follows Nick and Nora as they take the case of Nora's cousin's missing husband. Uh, but there is a surprising amount of screen time dedicated to the romantic life of the couple's dog, which um, the dog is named Asta, uh, and it is a wire fox terrier. And um, yeah, there's like a surprising amount of uh, of dog romance stuff going on in this movie. I just was not expecting that <laughs> at all. So uh, yeah, very, very odd. Um, the other notable thing about this is that uh, Jimmy Stewart plays a supporting role, which is really fun to see. So uh, yeah, that is called After the Thin Man, I would say. It's not quite as good as the original, but still plenty enjoyable. And um, the Jimmy Stewart stuff, especially, I feel like elevates it a little bit. So uh, you can rent that on Apple or YouTube or Amazon or whatever. Um, I also watched The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Have you ever seen this one? I haven't. I've heard of it, but I have not seen it. Yeah, I, I had never seen it. Uh, I, I think I'd heard very, very vague things about it. But uh, this is from 1947. Joseph L. Mankiewicz directed this. Um, Jean Tierney stars as Mrs. Muir, who is a, a widow with a very young daughter, played by Natalie Wood, who couldn't have been more than 10 years old at the time that she made this movie. And they move into a house that is haunted by the ghost of an old sea captain who is played by Rex Harrison. And... Uh, this is a very entertaining movie, Chris. Like she is this very nice woman who's very like put together and proper and stuff. And he is like this prickly bombastic personality. Who's always saying things like blasted all you confounded woman. I don't swear. My language is most controlled. And you know, it's just like very uh, over the top and it's basically working from like the, the beauty and the beast playbook, you know, like these characters are kind of they're opposites in a lot of ways, but slowly they develop a friendship that may evolve into something more which is obviously complicated because one of them is a literal ghost. So like, you know, yeah. there's some, uh, some problems there, but um, Bernard Herman, who uh, was the composer who often worked with um, Alfred Hitchcock, did the music for this, did the score. And the whole thing really just feels like this sweeping romantic classic. Um, I, I really, really dug this a lot. So I would highly recommend checking out the ghost in Mrs. Muir. I think if somebody were to make a list of like uh, non scary ghost movies, I imagine this would have to be, somewhere close to the top. So um, this one's also on the Criterion uh, channel, which I, again, recommend this one for sure. Uh, and then finally, I just wanted to mention that I rewatched Streets of Fire. Uh, Chris, I, I went back and listened. You, you and I in particular spoke about this on an episode of this podcast uh, that came out back in 2018. And I remember being kind of taken aback by how unique this movie was. And I remember liking it at the time, but it's doing so many different things and kind of mixing so many different tones and stuff that... I think I was like thrown off kilter by the movie just because I was not expecting how wild it is. But now my second time watching it, when I knew what I was getting into, I ended up liking it a lot more. Um, do you have any, uh, have you like rewatched Streets of Fire recently or any, uh, I guess, updated thoughts on that movie at all? I rewatched it, but I love Streets of Fire. I mean, I, I think the lead actor is kind of boring. He's like the weakest part of the movie, but everything else is so, it's such a cool movie. It's like the opening montage or like the opening scene where they're like having that concert and Diane Lane is singing. I was like, yeah. this is awesome. This is so <laughs> cool. And Willem Dafoe is so cool in the movie. It's just a really cool movie. Like it's yeah. like the definition of cool is that movie. <laughs> yeah. Walter Hill, the director said that the origins for this project, I, I was just reading about this a little bit before we started recording. He said the the origins for the project came from the stuff that he thought was great when he was a teenager and still had great affection for when he was making this movies. And the quote he gave was, uh, custom cars, kissing in the rain, neon, trains in the night, high-speed pursuits, rumbles, rock stars, motorcycles, jokes in tough situations, 
leather jackets, and questions of honor. And Hell I feel like yes. That does like a pretty good job of summing up the that's type like a, of stuff. That's like that a Bruce Springsteen song right there. All those like the lyrics of <laughs> the Bruce Springsteen song right there. Yeah, that's right. Kissing um, in the rain. <laughs> uh, and yeah, Michael Paré, the, the lead actor, I, I remember us talking about how he was definitely the, the weak link. I, I think I wasn't quite as bothered by his performance this time. Um, maybe again, just because I knew sort of more what to expect. But I was reading a little bit about it and the producers apparently saw Eric Roberts, Patrick Swayze, and Tom Cruise for the lead role. And oh, they actually man. like offered cruise the part but he was busy with another part and couldn't do it um but i was just like kind of blown away at like what streets of fire might have looked like with tom cruise the lead <laughs> like did you do you have any reaction to that chris that would be such a better movie or patrick swayze would actually be perfect for that it would be like even though i love the movie it would be like 10 times better with patrick swayze in there yeah especially because like the whole supporting cast is so like lights out all the way across you know you've got you've got diane lane as you mentioned you've got willem dafoe you've got rick moranis like Everybody yeah. in this movie feels like somebody who went on to become, if not a full-on superstar, at least like a, a recognizable, like really enjoyable presence on screen. And then you've got Michael Pare, who just kind of like seems like he wandered in from, it, it kind of works for the character, but it just doesn't really work in the same context of like, oh man, here's all these great people. And then there's this guy. But yeah. if you had Patrick Swayze in there, I feel like, yeah, he he would have brought the right energy, but also he would have had that he would have made this movie even more of a novelty of like, check out the young, you know, it kind of would have been like the, the short term 12 or something of, <laughs> of, uh, I don't know, greaser rock star motorcycle yeah. you know, kissing in the rain. <laughs> movies. <So>. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and get into what you've been watching. All right. What have you been watching recently, Chris? So Netflix just added a, a movie called plus one and it's a rom-com and I watched it the other night actually. And this is a charming, really likable movie. I feel like there's there aren't a lot of good rom-coms anymore. And so when when a new one crops up, we should celebrate that because it's like a it's a good genre when it's done well. And um, this stars uh, Maya Erskine and uh, Jack Quaid. And it's got a really contrived premise. They they're there are two people who have been friends since college, and they've both been invited to a bunch of weddings uh, over the summer. Uh, it's like 10 weddings between them total, which seems like insane to me. I, I can't imagine being invited that many ways. But anyway, <laughs> they're like, what if we be each other's dates to, the, to these weddings? Like you go with me to my weddings and I go with you to your weddings. And of course, as you can guess, they end up falling in love with each other. And, um, you know, even though that's not like the most original premise, it's it's such a charming movie. The, the, the two leads have really good chemistry together. And it's really funny. And I just, I really enjoyed this. I, I, it's just a, a light, charming, uh, really well done rom-com. Um, I like this, like when this came out, it, I didn't like, it like flew completely under my radar. Like, I don't know if you heard about this at all, but I just heard about it because it, they just added it to Netflix. So uh, I, I would really, if you're like in the mood for, especially because, you know, it's Valentine's Day this week. If you're in the mood for a, a, a rom-com to watch I, I really recommend this plus one now streaming on netflix yeah this is a great pick uh i did watch this a couple years ago because um our old pal ht recommended this a long long while back um, right. i think she saw it at like some film festival or something and reviewed it and, and spoke highly of it so um yeah man like my erskine is such an underrated performer i think she she has like you mentioned that great chemistry with jack quaid she also has terrific chemistry with donald glover in the new mr and mrs smith show have you seen any of that yet I haven't watched it yet, but I hear it's good. 
Yeah, and she especially, I feel like, is the the surprise. Like we all know how good Donald Glover is. He's been great, you know, for years and years. Um, but uh yeah, I, I'm just like so impressed with her as a performer. I I really loved Pen 15, the Hulu show that she was on. She's been she was like really great in that. Um so yeah, I'm, I just like wish all the best things for her because I, I just want her to be in more stuff. And she's like, yeah, this really adaptable um uh on-screen personality who seems to just have chemistry with anybody that <laughs> that a project needs her to. So uh, it's a rare quality these days. That's great stuff. Um, so that's plus ones on Netflix. What else have you been watching? Uh, I rewatched this little movie called The Social Network. Have you ever heard of The Social Network, Ben? <laughs> I have. It's been a long time, though, since I've seen this. What would you make of it on this yeah. most recent go around? Yeah, you know, the same thing. Like, I, I, I remember loving this movie so much when it came out. Um, I remember, like, I went through this, like... Uh, this movie is such like a strange beast because I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but like when it was first announced, everyone was like a movie about Facebook. That sounds awful. Like I know I was in that same boat where I was just like, cause I thought it was just going to be about like a movie about Facebook. You hear that and you're just like, well, that sounds like a piece of shit. Like who wants to watch <laughs> that? And then the, that trailer came out, that very first trailer came out with that cover of creep. And it was like, holy shit, this is not anything like I was expecting it to be. And, um, that just like popped into my head the other night. Like the, the trailer just popped in my head the other night. And I was like, I rewatched the trailer and I was like, God damn, this is such a good, like that's, that's uh, like without hyperbole, I honestly think that's like one of the best cut trailers of like the, the last, like whatever, 30 years, like maybe of mm-hmm. all time. It's just such a good trailer. It's selling what that movie is. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to rewatch this movie. And I did. And that movie really holds up, man. That movie is, is super solid. I don't think it's the best David Fincher movie. I, I think Zodiac is David Fincher's best movie, but this is definitely up there as uh, one of the the like his best films. It's definitely like one of the best movies of the two thousands. It's just a uh, and it's it's aged incredibly well of how this like you know the beginning of of the the social media era and how these these people were just obsessed with you know basically the whole website was built out of people being lonely basically mm-hmm. and that's you know now and it broke the world unfortunately like now now we're living in the post social media world where everything is just awful and you can see like the beginnings of that in in this movie and it's just aged incredibly well everyone is, is bringing their a game here that, that that score by trent Reznor and atticus ross is so good i've been like after watching it i was like i gotta listen to this score like nonstop now so uh, if you like, if you haven't seen the social network in a few years and you're like, I wonder if that holds up, I'm here to tell you it's, it still holds up. Yeah. I listen to that score when I'm writing sometimes it's like such good writing yeah. music. Um, what do you think about the idea of, um, of, uh, what is his name? Aaron Sorkin. Jeez. Aaron I can't, Sorkin. can't believe I forgot his name for a second. Uh, Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher potentially getting back together for like part two of the Zuckerberg, you know, like social network too. There's been so much talk about that over the past few years, especially with like Zuckerberg being uh, up in like Senate hearings and all that kind of stuff. And like the, the aftermath of the 2016 election and, and Facebook's involvement in that and all of that. So what do you think about having, you know, the original movie so fresh on your mind? What do you think about a potential reteam about that? I would love that. I know people have their problems with Aaron Sorkin. And I admit that sometimes he writes things that can be a bit cringy, but he's, he's really good at dialogue and that script for, the social network is really tight and really clever. And the, the prospect of, of those two getting back together to make another movie with, with like the same cast and, and set in that same 
I want to say set in the same world because it's our world, but um, set, set in you know in that that world would be I, I would I would love that I, you know I, I I like when Aaron Sorkin is on he's really on like I really loved that that Steve Jobs movie I know people don't love that but I thought that was dynamite the, the, the script for that is so good and I I would love to see him take a, him and, and Fincher to to work together again because Fincher really knows how to to use the, his scripts to to uh, maximum effect. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it just feels like every time one of them releases a project, you know, people on the, um, on the interview circuit, ask them about getting back together. It feels like over the past couple of years, there's been like more and more talk from them that makes it seem like it's not just people asking questions. It seems like they've actually had maybe discussions about doing it or something. So it's, it's far from like official, it's far from actually been announced or any of that, but, um, you know, it seems like maybe one day it could happen. So, well, stay tuned for that. Uh, okay, and then the last thing that you wanted to talk about—you've been rewatching one of the best shows ever, Chris. Yeah, so uh, I've I've been looking for something to watch, you know, when I'm not watching movies, and uh, The Sopranos just turned 25, which is insane. But um, I haven't, re- I have, I never actually rewatched The Sopranos. I watched it when it aired, and I never went back and rewatched it. And I was like, you know what, I'm gonna go ahead and rewatch the Sopranos from the beginning and I'm, I'm up to season four now because I've been watching it nonstop. and you know hot take good show what a good <laughs> show you know people talk about that show uh, and how it changed everything and it, and it really did when you watch it now like when, when I'm watching it now you can see like the origins of like every show from the peak tv era basically you know without that show you have no Breaking Bad you have no Mad Men you have no succession you have no better call Saul and you can like see the origins of all those shows when you rewatch it and man that 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 show really holds up what a what a phenomenal piece of work that series is <laughs> and um you know I, I I'm just like even now blown away by it and like you know not every episode hits there are some episodes where I'm just like well that was a lesser episode but just the fact that it exists at all is really cool and uh, I just I, I've been really enjoying rewatching it and Man, man, is it a shame that James Gandolfini is no longer with us? Because what a what a mountain of a talent he was! Like he's one of those actors. He's up there with like Philip Seymour Hoffman, where it's like, damn, I wish we had gotten more of their performances because we've we've lost out on so much great work from them. Yeah, man, a hundred percent. When I watched The Sopranos for the first time, I think it was a year or two ago. Um, I was worried going into it that it might feel a little bit like uh, going back to something like, um, I don't know, maybe this is not exactly a one-to-one example, but do you remember when like John Carter of Mars came out there? I guess it's just called John Carter, the the 2012 uh, live action Taylor Kitsch Disney movie. Um, That movie is, is based on the John Carter of Mars book series. And that came out, you know, long before, uh, whatever star Wars and like all of these sort of like space epics that have uh, infiltrated pop culture ever since. And so to me, the adaptation of John Carter kind of felt like been there, done that we've seen this before because all of these other things have since come out and, you know, like, I guess essentially improved on what, uh, what the original formula was. And I was kind of worried that the same thing might happen when I was watching Sopranos that I would feel like, oh yeah, this definitely is the blueprint for all this peak TV stuff, all these great, you know, new golden age of TV shows. But like the original thing doesn't really have the same punch to it or whatever, because I've seen 
you know, um, extrapolations of this formula so many different times now, but I was really thrilled that it didn't feel that way at all. It felt like, uh, you know, it's its own um, really like enthralling, engrossing thing, but also you can see the kind of, you can see the code in the matrix and you can see the, those, um, those blueprints that you're talking about. So uh, I don't know, like, is the story hitting you in a different way on rewatch, especially since you watched it originally 20 years ago or whatever? It's not hitting me differently, but it's like, oh, I remember this. And like, there are some things where it's like, oh, I don't remember this at all. And there are some storylines where I'm just like, they probably could have done without this story. <laughs> but um, <laughs> overall, it's just, it's, I just love the way, um, I, I really like, I, this is nothing new, but I hate the, how the very, like the modern era where I'm talking about like today, how a lot of TV shows have become like 12 hour movies. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's like, it's, it's like one story straight, like a lot of Netflix shows are like that. A lot. And Sopranos is not like that at all. Like every episode, almost every episode like stands on its own. Like, yeah, there are parts throughout the season that tie the season together, but, and it was the same thing with Mad Men, where it's like, you can watch individual episodes and they stand almost completely, they're like short stories, basically. And I, I really miss that, that, because it feels like there aren't a lot of shows like that today. Like, I think Succession is like the most recent example where it was telling an overarching story, but the episodes mostly stood on their own. And mm-hmm. I, I really wish more, sh- I wish more shows were serialized, I guess is what I'm saying. And so many shows today are just like, and this isn't like a secret. Like the, the, the showrunners when they do interviews are like, we approach this like a 12 hour movie. And it's like, no one wants to watch a 12 hour movie. <laughs> like I just, um, I, I just watched and I reviewed uh, masters of air masters of the air, which is the new Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, world war two show. And that's very much like a 12 hour movie. And it bored me to tears. I was just like, God damn it. Like, I don't want to sit through this. I, I like when you go back and you watch band of brothers, which is like the, the, the predecessor, those episodes very much stand on their own. It doesn't feel like a 12 hour movie. It feels like a serialized show. Mm-hmm. And it just shows how much it has changed in the TV landscape where it's like, we got to make this like a 12 hour movie now. And I don't want that. I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, man, I wonder why that is like, I, you would think that it, it is just the, um, the shortening of seasons, right? Like you would think that that has something to do with it, but that's not necessarily true because it's not just, it's not always shorter shows feel that way uh, or shorter like episode counts feel that way. So I wonder what the culprit is there. Um, I think it's just because everything is made now to be binged, even though like even Masters of Air is not, it's not released all at once. It's released weekly, but everything is like meant to be binged now. And I feel like that's how they're approaching writing it. It's where it's like, mm. well, people are going to sit down and watch this all at once. We got to make this all one story. And it's like, I, I'd rather you not do that. Like, yeah, give me, give me stories that stand on their own. Uh, okay. Last question about the Sopranos. Do you have a favorite Sopranos character? Somebody popping off the screen at you this time, man. I, it feels generic to say Tony Soprano, but I just love James Gandolfini's performance so much. It's so good. And it's <coughs> everyone else on the show is, is like, that's the thing. Rewatching it now is like, man, everyone on that show is a scumbag. Like <laughs> there's like almost no likable characters on that show. And it's like, some of it stands like, I, it's not that this is new to me. I knew this when I watched it the first time around, but watching it now, I'm actually kind of shocked at how, how nasty every character on that show is. It, it's ama- It's kind of amazing that they got away with that. So it's just impressive that, uh, 
you can make a show and it becomes that popular and everyone is just a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, you wrote a great article um, about every single person that Tony Soprano kills on The Sopranos. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes. I encourage people to uh, to to click on that and read it because it's a first of all, it's a well-written article. But second of all, I just rewatched the show and I was like, huh, I don't remember exactly you know, I remember Tony, of course, like lording over this entire operation, but I didn't remember all the times that he sort of like got his hands dirty specifically himself. Um, so it was like a, a refreshing, <laughs> I guess it's weird to say, it's a refreshing uh, reminder of uh, all the of murder all that, yeah. <laughs> that Tony Soprano committed. Um, but yeah, anyway, I thought it was great. So uh, check that out. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, I'll, I will also link to uh, the previous episode of The Water Cooler where we talked about Streets of Fire the first time in case anybody wants to go back and listen to the, our, our more, uh, I guess, deeper discussion about that the first time. So uh, yeah, that's going to do it for today's episode of the show. You can find more about all the things that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com. SlashFilmDaily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help us out a ton. Tell your friends about the show any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow.